Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Zambig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, we're going to talk about Atlantis. But first, as always, we've got shout-outs. Don't skip ahead. It's because of these patrons that this show can exist. That's right, shout-outs going out to everybody on patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. If you want to join, there's more episodes coming up for the patrons very soon. We have shout-outs to Menace the Beast. Menace the Beast, a very cool guy. A kick-ass magic robot webcomic. Ooh, I like that. Apparently, I'm, I'm doing a plug for kick-ass magic robot webcomic. I'll do that. Lionel, Sandy, Paige, Kosh, Sean, Deborah, Andrew, Tasha, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Christopher, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Michael, Terminal Animal, Alicia, Derek, Becca, Jen, Elizabeth, Voidtech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Eric, Brandon, Jen, Alexandra, George, Connie, Seth, Jason, Cindy, Kim, Ashley, what's that? Loki. Carrie Ezram, Robin Will, Lauren and Phil Mangano, Russell, Donald, April, Seth, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, The Sean Bishop, Paula, Jerry, Leo, Scoston, Lindsay Hahn, Megan, Aaron, Amy, Jeff T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Melissa, Lauren Mc... Ooh, Laura, I almost did it again. Lauren Strawn, hey, howdy, hi. Vanessa, Veronica, Autumn, J. Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Juliana, Dan, Laura... And gamer fan. Holy crap, I almost stumbled through the... I made it. I, I barely made it, but I was stumbling for a minute there. Once I lose the line, as I'm going down the lines, once I lose one line, it's it's like my brain is trying to catch up while my mouth is still going. So, But I did it with two special shout-outs, as always, to Joe Teague and Stitch. All righty, with that, let's head right on into paranormal news because we've got a lot of stuff to get to, and I want to make sure we get to it all. Suddenly, there was this incredibly bright light descending from the sky. Next thing we knew, we were in this big white room, and standing in front of me was this slimy two-legged creature with these wide lizard-like eyes across its face. Across its face. Across its face. Across its face. Oh, man, I got to play that one more often because that is just a freaking banging paranormal news intro song. That is awesome. Alrighty, the first story in paranormal news, mysterious bulging triangle UFO filmed over city for two hours. A bulging triangular UFO was filmed over a major city for two hours. The unusual object was spotted prowling the skies of Islamabad, Pakistan, in broad daylight by an extraterrestrial enthusiast. Gobsmack 
Arslan Wariak, Warash, I'm sure I said that wrong, I apologize, says he spent a lengthy two hours watching the triangular shape hover above the city. The 33-year-old was mesmerized by the unusual object drifting over the city's wealthy DHA1 district. And a clip is now sent. Skywatchers, tongues wagging. My tongue is not wagging. Well, I guess I'm talking, so it's kind of wagging. He recorded the UFO, making the most of the clear airspace for over 12 minutes from different angles to acquire the best view. He explained, I still don't know what it was. I filmed it for over 12 minutes at different times, took dozens of pictures, and observed it for the better part of two hours. To the naked eye, it seemed to be black, round rock. But as I zoomed in, I could see it was roughly the shape of a triangle with a clear bulge on top towards the back. Okay, here's a photo of it. I mean, it's black. It's got some kind of squarish spire. I mean, it kind of looks like some weird shaped balloon. He said it was solid black, had no sharp edges. It wasn't reflecting too much light, and no lights were emanating from it. In the extraordinary footage, the mysterious object, mystifying object, sorry, the mystifying object is seen hanging motionless over the hustle and bustle of the capital city below. That's why I think it's a balloon. A fly and several birds then cross into the shot, showing the clear difference between the creatures and the distant UFO. I don't know what it was, but I know what it wasn't. It wasn't a bird. I actually got birds in the clip while I was filming this thing. I fly drones myself, so I know it wasn't a commercial drone either. And it makes no sense for our military to be flying secret drones over a posh area of Islamabad where most of the army and government officers live. Hmm. One admirer wrote, The recording is extremely high quality, not just for the technical achievement of such extended physical effort to track it for so long, but also the extended verbal, verbal commentary and description of the event. Ooh, I can't wait to watch this video now. Do you realize how rare a document like this is? Another said, this is how you capture a UFO. All right, I want to watch the video now. Let's get to the video. Let's... Oh, here we are. Dead still. It's just dead still. It's not a drone. It's definitely not a kite. Hmm. And it's not a bird. Here's a bird. Here's a bird. There's a bird. Yeah, that is a bird. Go back to the thing. This is not a bird. The same right. spot. That is weird. It's not floating away. It is in the exact same spot. Okay. Unless it's a tethered balloon and it's got to be high, the, the tether's got to be long. Odd thing just there for the past one hour or so. Heaven here, you can see birds. Where are the birds? I mean, it could be. Wow, those birds are high though. That thing is way the hell up there. Everything is clear, nothing, 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 and boom, there, there you go. There it is. Still, all right, I will say, moving. it's, it's all right, just my shut, camera shut that's up, moving, my hand that is moving. Shut up, shut up, I'm trying to talk. I will say that, yeah, I mean, it is great footage, I'll give them that, if it's a balloon. It has to be, that's my guess, is it, I mean, I don't know what it is, it's black, it's kind of blurry, I don't know what it is, but if, if it's a balloon, it had to be tethered to somewhere in the city. But, I mean, it's not even swaying left and right, even, like, if it was tethered. Because that thing's that'd be a long tether, and it would sway with the wind. It would be pushing. I guess maybe not. I guess if the wind was all blowing in one direction, it was tethered to the ground, you can't see the tether, it would look like it's stationary. But that thing looked dead, solid stationary. I don't know what to think of that. But I will throw it up on the Facebook pages, and also on the Patreon. I apologize to a couple of patrons who go, hey, you know what, we don't have Facebook, we don't want Facebook, but we want to see these videos. Can you throw them up on the Patreon page? Yes, I can. Yes, I will. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news, the stuff that I love. You guys know I love to, to talk about these. 
this haunted abandoned village in Scotland can be yours for $173,000. Yeah. American, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's American. Holy crap. I still can't afford it, but it's closer to affording it than like a million dollars. The old village of Lars, currently for sale in Scotland, comes with some baggage. In addition to its century-old ruins, the property purportedly comes with a ghost of a seer who is famous for her accurate predictions. If this sounds like your dream listing, the historic village can be yours for $173,000 American. The sale of the old village of Lars in Perthshire, Perthshire, Scotland, is being managed by Goldcrest Land and Forestry Group. The settlement dates back to the 17th century. It includes the ruins of the old Lars Church, a kiln, a mill, and the House of Lars. The latter site housed the Lady of Lars in the late 1600s. The seer put forth various prophecies in her lifetime, including visions of fire coaches and ships powered by smoke. These have since been interpreted as predictions of trains and steamship. Yep, I agree with that. She also proclaimed that the ridging stones for the church would never be laid, a prediction that came true when a storm washed them away. Today, the ghost of Lady of Lars is said to haunt the village she once called home. The three-acre property offers more than dilapidated buildings and supernatural legends. It also comes with a private beach, semi-ancient woodland, and the rights to fish for trout and launch a boat in Loch Tay. The village, which has been unoccupied since the early 20th century, is perfect for someone looking for a truly secluded getaway in central Scotland. Yes, please. The old village of Lars is listed for 125,000, what is that, pounds? Or roughly 172,859 U.S. dollars. You can view the entire listing and contact the sellers here. Well, not here. You'd have to push the button that I'm looking at. Don't don't call me. I have nothing to do with it. I will scam you out of 173000 and then buy it myself. So don't try to send me the money. Well, there's a video. You know, I like watching videos on it. Oh, God. Oh. Nothing better than watching videos on an auditory podcast. But I just kind of want to see what this the village looks like. I will describe it to you the best I can. There's lush green lands and dark waters. There's trees. There's a drone slowly flying over the trees towards the waters, the dark, dark waters. It looks cold. Um, all right, let's come on. Let's get to the freaking house already. I've seen the, okay, I've seen the trees. Yes, we've seen the water, still trees and water. Skipping ahead, still trees and water. Skipping ahead. Oh, there we go. I see a ruin of a house. Boy, that's really ruined. It's neat, though. It's barely anything left of a building at all. Back to the trees, back to the grounds. More trees, more grounds, more grounds, more greens, more water. Ah, that's the end of the video. All right, anyhow, $173,000. Who wants to buy it for me? Because I want to live there and do a podcast with a seer ghost. That's cool. Alrighty, up next in paranormal news, petition calls for U.S. government release of UFO videos. You might be saying, that's old news, but no, it's not. This is new. Hold on a second. Wait, just wait. At 1,500 signatures, this petition is more likely to get picked up by local news. A new, a new petition calls for the United States government to release to the public all unclassified videos of unidentified flying objects or UAVs or UAPs. Initiated on February 10th by Adam Goldsack of the United Kingdom. Way to go, Adam. The petition is hosted on the change.org website. Everybody, go sign this thing. 
even if it doesn't do anything, just just sign these kinds of petitions. It doesn't hurt you to sign it, and it might get us something, so go, go sign it. The radical transmedian technology of unidentified aerial phenomena is currently being withheld from the American public. The UAPTF DNI preliminary report on UAP found that the 130, 143 of 144 cases were classified as unidentified, according to the petition. Uh, let's see, you guys know about the rest of it, that nine-page report that didn't really release anything, and the, the government going, oh, no, we totally, we're going to make a group, and we'll tell you everything. Well, this guy says, no, I want to see it now. All right, let's move on. I got a lot to get to. Up next in paranormal news, plane passenger gobsmacked as mysterious UFOs seen as they take off. A plane passenger claimed they spotted a UFO out the window during a takeoff from Glasgow Airport last Thursday as they quickly took photos of the unidentified object. The anonymous passenger claimed they saw a large oblong shape flying through the air as they set off from Glasgow Airport on Thursday, February 17th. The photos were taken from the right-hand side of the plane as it took off from the Scottish Airport. The sighting comes week after a weeks after a passenger on a plane from Glasgow to London Gatwick was spooked by a strange object she spotted during the flight. Huh. There's a photo. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a black oblong-shaped object. I mean, I don't, it's, this, this photo is tough. It could be an airplane coming in for a landing. It could be a bird. It could be a bug on the window of the plane. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not gobsmacked by it, but that's just me. Already up next in paranormal news, American Airlines pilot, strange UFO report so detailed it actually shook experts. The unidentified object was spotted in U.S. airspace between Phoenix and Cincinnati on February 21st and has been confirmed by American Airlines and the FBI. A pilot who came close to crashing into a UFO recalled the incident in a report that reportedly shook the experts. The American Airlines pilot claimed he saw a long cylindrical object flying over New Mexico exactly one year ago today. Not today, but earlier. Both the pilot and the FBI confirmed that flight AA-2292 had a near miss with a UFO on February 21st, 2021. The report is just coming to light. The airport was traveling between Cincinnati and Phoenix when the bizarre event occurred shortly before 20 past 1 local time. It quickly became one of the most significant UFO sightings of last year, becoming one of the several triggers that saw experts push for more transparency from the U.S. the U.S. government about UFOs. The unexplained incident saw the pilot contact Albuquerque Air Traffic Control to request um, information when he was heard asking if they had targets up in the air. In an audio clip of the radio transmission, he added, We had just had something go over the top of us. I hate to say it, but it looked like a long cylindrical object that almost looked like a cruise missile type thing moving really fast over the top of us. American Airlines initially played down the report. However, a company spokesperson confirmed the incident in a statement that said, Following a debrief with our flight crew and additional information received, we can confirm this radio transmission was from American Flights 2292 on February 21st. The FAA added in their statement that the air traffic controllers did not see any object in the area on their radar scopes. That is crazy cool. And then, as with every UFO story now, it goes to talk about the U.S. government and the Tic Tac UFOs. Which means time to move on to the next story. Up next in paranormal news... New infrared image shows swarm of flashing tic-tac-shaped UFOs chasing four Navy destroyers off California coast at 70 miles per hour. A grainy new image has been released by the Navy showing what appears to be three small dots representing unmanned aerial systems. UFOs. Three devices appeared about the USS Paul Hamilton on, Ju on July 17, 2019, and this video, I'm sorry, this photo is now being released to the public. 
Other ships off the coast of California also reported several occurrences and red flashing lights throughout July starting on the 14th that same year. The Navy said in April of 2021 it was unable to identify the objects and the Department of Defense since declined to comment. But there is a newly released infrared image that shows a swarm of three tic-tac-shaped UFOs chasing four U.S. Navy destroyers off the coast of California. The grainy image has been released by the Navy and shows what appears to be three small dots representing unmanned... All right, I already talked... It already said that like 15 times. Is this the image? An infrared image? Yeah, all right. So this is the image, black and white image, three dots. No idea what it does. Uh, the story keeps going on, but it's basically the same story that you hear all the time where they... They sent out planes to investigate. They moved to other um, nearby ships and destroyers to and see if they had sightings, which they did. They investigated, yada, yada, yada. No one knows what it is. Hence, UFO. All righty. Up next in paranormal news, Bigfoot Day returns the first weekend in April. That's right. If you're in Estes Park, Estes Park Bigfoot Day is returning, celebrating all things squatchy. This weekend event begins on April 1st, Friday that is, with our Bigfoot Barbecue, a ticketed dinner featuring celebrity guests, but not me, and concludes on Saturday, April 2nd with a free outdoor festival in Bond Park. The festival runs from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and features um, and features appearances and talks from television Bigfoot celebrities and experts, live music, outdoor-themed activities for the entire family, craft, food, and vendors, a Bigfoot calling contest, area Bigfoot tours, and so much more. For tickets... Go to EstesParkEventsComplex.com. Make it a little bit more difficult to do. All righty, so how much are tickets to the Estes Park Complex event? Oh, here's your celebrity guest. We got Huckleberry of Mountain Monsters. You got Cliff Barrickman of Finding Bigfoot. And you got Wild Bill of Mountain Monsters. With a special appearance by the 4x4 Monster Truck original Bigfoot. All right, that is cool. I want to see that. All right, give me the tickets. How much are tickets? Let's see. Oh, for the love of God. Give me a ticket price. Bigfoot days. Yes. $90 for the Bigfoot barbecue dinner. And it won't let me go to anything else. So it's going to be at least $90 to do one dinner. But... If they were to invite me, I would do an episode from there in a heartbeat and talk all about the fact that you shouldn't, as you all know, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. Alrighty, let's keep going. Up next in Paranormal News is actually one that's kind of cool. I'm very excited about it. It's an update from a previous episode. Now, I don't know if this episode was a patron-only episode or if it was an episode that I sent out to everybody, because I can't remember. I've done too many, but... Here's an update on one episode. Patrons or regular people, let me know. If you haven't heard it, regular people, if you haven't heard it, and you're scouring through all the episodes, you can't find it, then it's a patron episode. Go listen to it there, because it's a freaking good episode. Anyhow, the news is, Loch Ness Home, which belonged to Satanist and world's wickedest man, Aleister Crowley, and Led Zeppelin rocker Jimmy Page, will be restored with a wildflower meadow as charity is granted 10,000 pounds. That's right, the Bullskeen, or Bullskin, I already forgot how to pronounce it, I think it's Skeen. The Bullskeen House Foundation is restoring the property of the same name, which overlooks Loch Ness in Scotland. The house is best known as the one-time home of Aleister Crowley, and said to have been, he is said to have performed occultist rituals there. Then, Jimmy Page bought the house in the 1970s because of the Crowley connection before selling it in 1992. The home was gutted by fire in 2015, and another blaze ripped through the site in July of 2019. 
But now a charity is restoring it. Let's see. Sell me something new here. Now millions of native wildflower seeds are to be planted to create a new eco-friendly meadow there. That's kind of cool. I like it. And then it just shows photos of Aleister Crowley and Jimmy Page. Oh, and the fire. That sucks. The funds will be used to help create the largest and most diverse wildflower meadow in the Loch Ness area with a new vista viewpoint and sweeping panoramic views of the loch. At least 42 different species of wildflower will be planted in a five-acre meadow and reintroducing native species into the local land. New trails are also planned for visitors to walk through the meadow and enjoy the sights of the loch. Our bold new vision for the estate is to create a space of nature to thrive alongside heritage, creating a, pa a positive, lasting legacy for the local area. We're thrilled to be able to include this landmark. Um, eh, it keeps going, but it's it's very cool. I, I think that's a great idea. I think it's phenomenal. Invite me over there, and I will gladly do an episode from there because, as you know, it's one of my dreams is to go to uh, Loch Ness and spot Nessie, not a monster. All righty. With that, let's close up the paranormal news. Take a quick break. We'll be right back. We are back. This episode. Oh, this episode is a rough one because depending on when in life you would ask me, you know, hey, do you, Kurt, do you think UFOs? No, Jesus, UFOs. Yeah, UFOs on the brain. Kurt, do you think Atlantis is real? My answer would vary greatly. Now, if you ask me any time in my life, do you think UFOs are real? It's always, yeah, of course. But if you would ask me, do you think Atlantis is real? Depending on when you would ask me. Kid. Oh, yeah, of course. Teen. Psh, hell no. Ten years ago? Fuck no. Five years ago? I hope so. But now? Well, I'm now leaning heavily in the Atlantis might have been real category. Now, I say this with the caveat that I don't think Atlantis had flying cars and future tech and lived in a dome under the sea, but more in the, you know, Atlantis was a real place. It had civilized, educated, for the time, people, you know, the people that lived there. It, had, it was a seafaring community. I do believe that could be true. Now, before you laugh and, you know, say this is bullshit and turn off this episode, hold on. Just know a lot of science has looked into Atlantis and there may be proof. But you're going to have to listen to the whole episode or I suppose get lucky in your, you know, lucky enough in your skipping to find the evidence. But uh, you have to listen to the whole episode. That's all I'm saying. This episode, though, I started this episode, started writing the outline for this episode when I started this podcast, so at least three years ago. It had to be, yeah, at least three years ago. Um, and I would start it, and I would go down, you know, start investigating, and, oh, that's actually, this, this actually leads to a question I just got asked recently, like, are you just going to a website and reading to us from a website? No, I am not. I spend a lot of time on these episodes going to various sources on the internet and books and newspapers and anything I can get my hands on and then get rid of all, debunk all the BS, get rid of all the regurgitated crap, find sources that I could find to tell, to talk to you guys about. And then I write an outline. Now it's not a full script. If, if it seems like I'm reading, yeah, I'm reading sections to you, but it's mostly an outline that I'm going through. 
But that being said, I, I started this outline right when I started this podcast and started going down weird rabbit holes and trying to confirm that this actually said the X, Y, and Z and didn't say this crap. And I get a headache and I'd be like, all right, I can't do this episode. And I put this episode away and I would come back to it periodically. And I mean, fairly regularly, I'd come back to it going, you know, I got to finish this episode because I've always wanted to do an Atlantis episode. And then it would be kind of overwhelm me again. And I'd put it away again. It's very similar to what's happening still to this day with the witches episode. Sometimes when I want to do an episode, I can't quite get the theme or the pace or the content. I can't figure out how I'm going to do the episode the way I want to do it, that, that I think should be done right. And, I, and when I get to that point and I get frustrated, I don't want to do a half-ass episode, so I put it away and I come back to it later, which is what I've done, like I said, billions of times with this episode. That being said, the search for Atlantis falls under a newish scientific term because in 1966, scientist Dorothy Vitliano coined the term geomythology. She said it's the science of seeking to find the real geological event underlying a myth or a legend to which is given rise. And I like that. I really like that. And that's the best way to Think about Atlantis is geomythology. Is it real or is it all mythology? And yeah, science is trying and has been trying, I should say, for a very long time to prove, or as with most scientists, to disprove Atlantis. And for a number of years, it'll be completely mythology and disproved, and then something will happen, and then everybody will go, huh, maybe there is something to it again. Now, um, before I really get into this episode, I got there's a lot of caveats. I apologize. Before I really get into this episode, there are, like I was kind of saying when I would get overwhelmed, there's an insane amount of rabbit holes that I had to go down to find One Piece to monk others. Atlantis sends you down more rabbit holes than Hollow Earth. And you know what? It even overlaps with Hollow Earth in some of the theories. Now, every time I thought I reached the end of proof or no proof of Atlantis, I would find like a name or something that mentions proof, and then boom, this new week-long rabbit hole would go down. I would go down it, and it would just, it's insane. Some, well, not some, most of the rabbit holes are batshit crazy with no proof at all, and only the same regurgitated crap that leads back to the one, to the book, to this book, to that tablet, to more. Oh, tablet? There'll be more on the tablets later. Don't worry, it's in this episode. But this so-called proof of Atlantis, I'll just put it all in one basket. But seriously, I remember very quickly, I would remember why I would start this episode and put it away. Because it's headache-inducing madness filled rabbit holes, and a ton of them on the internet. So back to... Why do I think it's real? Well, actually, you know what? No, no, no. I I'm sorry. Before I get to that, let's go back in time for a bit, and let's talk about Atlantis history first. I think that's most important. It's way, it's way more important than why I think it might be real. Uh, Atlantis history, first, it's almost universally agreed upon that the first known writing about Atlantis is from Plato. He described Atlantis as a mighty state that possessed 10,000 chariots, advanced technologies, vast number of elephants and bulls, 
series of complex canals. It had massive fleets of ships. Most of the info came from Plato's, oh, I already forgot how to say this, Timius and Critius, Critius? It doesn't matter. It's Plato's works. I doubt you've read them. They were written about 330 BC. Now, I can say that some of what Plato wrote about Atlantis was 100% exaggerations or miscalculations. Greeks at that time thought Egypt was lost to the sands 11,000 years before them, which hopefully you know isn't true. So, yes, if you literally look at all of the details Plato said about Atlantis, it 100% cannot be true. Episode over, end of the episode, but wait. If you take every distance and time that Plato quotes about Atlantis, you divide it by 10, which is a reasonable mark based on the age of Egypt, you get a civilization about halfway between Greece and Egypt that was destroyed about 1600 BC, you know, BC. If you think about the time it was written and the miscalculations of land size, age, cartography, it puts it back into the possibly true area, in which case, let's keep going. Now, Plato mentions that travelers in those days used Atlantis to get to the further islands from where they had access to the whole mainland over on the, on the other side. Now, the mainland, which surrounds that genuine sea, it's kind of what he said. I'm, I'm, very, I'm kind of paraphrasing Plato, but I'm also not reading it in whatever Greek, Latin, whatever he wrote it in. But uh, basically, Plato mentions that Atlantis, some generations after its foundation, began to enslave its neighbors by using its supreme navy. So the big thing to remember is the description of Atlantis, which are concentric ringed islands, and there's a bigger island. The fact that there's a strait that'll take you out to sea or to another land. The fact that there is a navy, so they're a very, you know, seafaring community. Uh, the fact that they're an empire that, quote, ruled the whole island, many of the other islands, part of the mainland. They also governed some of the lands here inside the strait, Libya up to the border with Egypt, and Europe up to Etruria. I don't know where Etruria is. I'm assuming it's by Eternia. Okay, so now that we have some general and specific pieces about Atlantis, let's really dig in and keep going. So the, founder, the founders of Atlantis, according to Plato, were half God and half human. Kurt here. Don't put too much stock into that. Some people really focused on that. Some for good, some for evil. More about that later. There were a lot of God's children around that time. So don't put any stock into that. Atlantis was made up of concentric islands separated by wide moats linked by a canal that penetrated to the center. The lush islands contained gold, silver, and other precious metals and supported an abundance of rare exotic wildlife. More about the precious metals later, too. I know I'm adding like, oh, I'll get to that later. Don't worry, I will. There's, there's lots of stuff I'm going to get to later. There was a great capital city on the central island. Atlantis is regarded as an enemy force that came to attack the Athenian nation-state. Now, Athens repelled the attack, according to Plato. The island of Atlantis, eventually losing support of the gods, sank into the ocean, or as we like to call it, natural disaster. Probably earthquake, volcano, tsunami, you know how it is. We know that that can happen. So that part can completely happen. Then, 
we get to a possible location. He said it that was somewhere between the Pillars of Hercules, also known as the Straits of Gibraltar. Then Plato wrote, uh, In a single night and day, the island disappeared into the depths of the sea. And that started everybody looking for Atlantis. To this day, I might add. Alrighty, so let's talk about locations. Let's go to that part of it next. Well, it would help if we could just find Atlantis on a map. There's a bunch of old maps. Are there any ancient maps of Atlantis? Well, some people, if you go down that rabbit hole, say, yes, there is. But I say no, and let me tell you why. There are no maps of Atlantis. Also, it's not just me saying no. There's a lot of people who have spent decades looking into it that are probably way smarter than me that also say no. The map that everybody's talking about, that believers say proof of Atlantis, is a map from Herodotus. Who? Well, he's known as the father of history, and if I remember correctly, and please don't correct me because it's really not important, plus I went to school in America and learned more about philosophers from Bill and Ted than I did in school, so again, I don't care, but I think Herodotus came after Plato. Now, some people say the map of Herodotus is proof of Atlantis, except there's one big problem with that. The biggest problem with the map of Herodotus there is no map from Herodotus. Repeat that as many times as you need to repeat it until you get it through your head. There are only later reconstructions based on his work. There is no actual map of his that survived. And there are tons of these reconstructions. So there's not the world map of Herodotus, but a series of maps based on him, and most importantly to this episode, he never mentions Atlantis. Not even once. Yes, his map says Atlanteans on it. But no, this isn't Atlantis Atlanteans. This is in regards to Mount Atlas. He is actually describing the Nasimonians, I forget, think, I believe that's how it is, inhabitants of Mount Atlas. Yes, his map says Atlanteans. It's not At Atlantis. It's Mount Atlas. Now, he located Mount Atlas at the westernmost part of Africa, a place he believed to be the western edge of the world. It's very important to note he was a historian and not a cartographer, which is very clear if you look at his map of Africa and how wrong it was. But I'll give him some points. He did his best guessing based on what they did know at the time. So Mount Atlas, he claimed, was a peak so high that its top was never seen. And it was inhabited by the Atlantes or the Atlanteans, depending on which version of the map you ever find, who eat, quote, no living creature and see no dreams in their sleep. So vegetarians, basically. I could go more into this map. I mean, I could really go on and on about the map. Trust me, I went down that rabbit hole enough to know it'll bore the pants off of you guys. And that's not what I want. Let's move on from it because, again, there is no map of Herodotus. Just maps based on, like, recreations after recreations, never his. 
And it doesn't even mention Atlantis. I might as well be talking about a treasure map on the back of a kid's menu at a diner. That's how much it connects to Atlantis. It really doesn't. So no map of Atlantis ever. What about possible locations? Well, the first possible location is two older paranormal news stories that I'm about to read to you. And it's also my favorite for the possible location of Atlantis. Because, well, well, because science, that's why. Um, this is the one that I think is on the right track. So this first story comes from uh, January of 2017. Researchers believe they found proof of the legendary city of Atlantis, that it actually existed. The Bronze Age civilization, which has captured our imagination for centuries, is said to have been destroyed overnight after being hit by an earthquake and tsunami thousands of years ago. Experts now say the discovery of large stone anchors in the Strait of Gibraltar. Hey, hold on a second. Let me go back a minute. Didn't I talk about, I did, a possible location mentioned by Plato is that it exists beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which is now known today as the Straits of Gibraltar. It's a big clue. So the new National Geographic documentary, Atlantis Rising, follows a team of experts embarking on an epic search for the lost city from Santorini to the islands of Azores, both possible locations. The Speaking on the expedition, filmmaker Simcha Yakovi said, we went back to this source and used the way he describes Atlantis as a treasure map, comparing the city's features and existing places. Using advanced navigation uh, techniques and, and multi-spectral imaging, the teams of scientists and marine archaeologists set out to uncover clues about Atlantis. They found more than they bargained for. Clips from the new documentary show marine archaeologists uncovering large stone anchors in what was the Pillars of Hercules. The anchors, which spans 83 uh, centimeters across and sports a hole in the center, could be proof of docks or breakers at the dive site. Speaking of the find, Professor Richard Freund of University of Hartford said, It's a really amazing find. This anchor you can get very excited about. This is three to 4,000 year old. Uh, 3,000 to 4,000 years old is massive for a very large boat, which shows us the ancient large boats were sailing into this area 4,000 years ago. The, bronze un uh, the team uncovered six similar anchors, which they believe date back to the Bronze Age. These anchors could be 3,500 to 4,000 years old, establish a harbor in the Atlantic where I don't even dream, where I didn't even dream to find anchors. And there's another story. I said there was two. That's one. The second one is Lost City of Atlantis, believed found off of Spain. A U.S.-led research team, a U.S.-led research team may have finally located the city of Atlantis, the legendary metropolis believed swamped by a tsunami thousands of years ago in mud flats in southern Spain. A U.S.-led search uh, in the mudflats in southern Spain said this is the power of tsunamis, head researcher Richard Freund told Reuters. It's just so hard to understand that it can wipe out 60 miles inland, and that's pretty much what we're talking about. To solve the age-old mystery, the team analyzed satellite imagery of a suspected submerged city just north of Cadiz, Cadiz Spain. Uh, they're buried in the vast marshlands of the Dona Ana Park. They believe they found the uh, ancient multi-ringed dominion known as Atlantis. It matches the multi-rings. So the team of archaeologists and geologists in 2009 and 2010 used a combination of deep ground radar, digital mapping, and underwater technology to survey the site. 
The Discovery is a strange series of memorial cities built in Atlantis' image by its refugees after the city's likely destruction by a tsunami. Uh, Atlantean residents who did not die in the tsunami fled inland and built new cities there, he added. The team's conclusion are detailed in a special called Finding Atlantis that's already came out. We found something that no one else has ever seen before, which gives it a layer of credibility, especially for archaeology, that makes a lot more sense. They actually have a computer graphic image that shows the concentric rings that may have existed during Atlantis's ancient heyday. It's, it's really cool. This is like archaeology and science saying, hey, you know what? This may be it. Uh, they go on to say, debate whether Atlantis truly existed has lasted for thousands of years. They, they plan further excavations at the site where they believe Atlantis is located and at the mysterious cities in the central Spain, 150 miles away, to more closely study geological formations and to date artifacts. All right. So that's it with the paranormal news. I'll close that up for right now. But, um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's other pieces. There's a piece by Live Science about this exact same Spain um, archaeological investigation or expedition, whatever you want to say. Uh, it's, it's too long to read, but it, it really, really does match Plato's description plus the geographical location. Uh, it's really, really interesting is all I'm saying. And again, the reason I think that Atlantis could exist and why it's there. So they go on to say, does it make, uh, this is the last bit I'm going to read from this live science article. Does it make sense that this area is Atlantis? I can't say for sure, but it might. When science says it might, that it's a very interesting spot, it's quite obviously something there, something archaeological there. That intrigues me. But, so that's my location. That's my guess. But we're still only not even halfway through this episode. There's more to come. Besides that one, besides Spain, people have made dozens of claims over the years to where Atlantis might be, including Antarctica, Bolivia, Turkey, Germany, Malta, Caribbean, America, look, just about everywhere else. The first most intriguing one, the one that I thought, ooh, this could possibly be it. And I got to say, it's one of the most popular places for believers. Is a very cool one with a very cool backstory that, spoiler, isn't Atlantis. Like I said, it's got a cool backstory because in 1965, astronauts took some photos of an area in the Udane, Mauritania, Mauritania, Africa. It's basically Northern Africa. They took some... um Photos, that astronauts took some photos of the Eye of Africa, or as it's more, more commonly known or more popularly known as the Eye of the Sahara. This is one of the most popular places that believers say, yep, we found Atlantis. Now, they named it the Richat Crater or the Rikat Crater, but they say that testing has shown it wasn't made from an asteroid or a meteor, so it's odd. It's very concentric circles, concentric rings, in the desert, in the Saharan desert. They said it wasn't made from an asteroid, wasn't made from a meteor. Maybe water's receding or some natural disaster, but most likely, science is saying, hey, look, it's this is what it's from, is an eroded dome of a magma. But it matches. It's got the concentric rings in the middle of a desert. So, yeah, the Eye of Sahara has some 
of the markers of Atlantis that Plato spoke about. The valleys, the rings, if there, if there was water filled up in between the rings, it would match the description. Now, without naming names, there are a bunch of YouTube videos by <laughs> experts. I'm, I'm air quoting like mad the word experts that say, this is it, 100%. The Eye of Sahara is Atlantis. And then they give you a lot of BS. Basically, they all latch on to one detail, the rings, and then ignore everything else, everything else archaeological and scientific. And, you know, it's kind of what, like, flat earthers do, where you can give them all of the science, and they go, nah, uh, science, bleh. It's that kind of same thing with this Eye of Sahara in Atlantis. There was no ocean or even water in the Eye of Sahara 12,000 years ago. Hell, let's double that. Nope. How about 10 times that number? Nope. There are no remains of any civilization there. Nothing. There aren't any. It's been checked by independent archaeologists, so you can't say, well, that's just, you know, the government trying to keep you down. Like I said, there's one guy. Like I said, it's been checked by independent archaeologists that have actually had, like, boots on the ground. It's not just by some YouTube armchair quarterback kind of guy going, no, it's real because I saw one satellite photo of it. And uh, you know what the archaeologist found? Well, I'll tell you what he founds in just a second. But what they didn't find were they didn't find shells, whale and fish bones, and none of that BS. I mean, that was all BS. This guy was like, look, they found stuff at the site in the middle of the Sahara Desert, so it had to have been an ocean. No, they didn't find any of that. In the video, he says the size is exactly as Plato quoted it. Nope, not even close. The three rings of the island and mode alone would be 23.5 kilometers across. Well, problem here is that uh, that crater is 25 miles across. Miles and kilometers are not the same thing. Now, if you believe Plato. Now, the diameter actually ought to be around 5.5 kilometers, not even 23.5 kilometers. So he's not even close to that. Uh, speaking of archaeologists, though, like I was saying, let me read you a story real quick about one such archaeologist who actually has been there. Sorry, YouTube expert. He's done the boots in the ground work, and you're just wrong. The Aya Sahara is not Atlantis in any way, shape, or form. So they said they, they show, first thing they do in this article is they show the photo of the Aya Sahara. Like I said, it is really cool looking. It's very bizarre looking. It's in the middle of the desert. It's ringed. It's concentric ring. Sure, I'll give them that. It's the remains of a dome that's taken 100 million years to erode. The structure looks great from above, from, from, from the ground, and then they show a photo of him in the middle of the structure. Not so much. So he's talking about his young guide, Elion D. Azuguier, who scratched his head in hours we drove around in our 4x4 truck. It's got to be around here somewhere. And mentioned that he mumbled in French. They get to the Eye of Sahara a couple of times, and... Uh, Few tourists are willing to go so deep into the Sahara. Indeed, few tourists go anywhere near there anyway. It's been so long that he wasn't sure if they could find it. They eventually found it. And uh, he says, yeah, it's nothing there. I mean, nothing. There's not remains. There's not a mosque. There's not anything inside this dome. He's, he went to towns around the dome, and he found mosques and old... Um, ruins and whatnot, but he says from the actual location itself, no. 
And he says, I've traveled nonstop to all 54 African countries from 2013 to 2018. I spent five weeks per country on average. I've been to the tallest points to the lowest points. There is nothing there. That's about all I can read. All I'm going to read from that one. Sorry, that one's been ruled out. Frankly, not even fit to begin with. Like I said, it looks cool from space, but not on the ground. Besides, Spain, that's where it's at. Better fit. All righty. Then there's a historical place that a lot of people think matches Atlantis. Some scientists say not only does it match Atlantis, it might have been the inspiration for Atlantis if Atlantis isn't real. It's called the city of Helike or Hilike. I already forgot. Doesn't matter. It was a rich city in the shores of North Peloponnese, and it's gone now. That's why it doesn't matter. So legends or stories say that it evolved into a major maritime force. Okay, ding. There's your check mark for check mark for uh, Atlantis. Ding. There is. There's one. Goods and trades were done there. Sailors traveled all over the world. Ding. Establishing colonies in Asia Minor and Sicily. Ding. Ancient sources mention that a temple dedicated to the Helokinian, Helokinian, Helokidian. It's the Helokidian Poseidon. Basically, it's Poseidon. It's a marvelous work of art. Um, it was second in religious importance only to the famous Delphi Oracle. It had a massive bronze statue of Poseidon located either inside the sanctuary, near it, or at the city harbor. Ding, just like Atlantis. And just like Atlantis... One winter night of 373 B.C., a massive earthquake sank the entire city into the sea. Wow, that's a big ding for Atlantis as well. All right, now let's get to some more theatrical kind of tellings of this city. The catastrophe was apocalyptic, even after a massive rescue mission consisting of over 2,000 men. They could not retrieve the bodies of the dead nor the riches of the city. The whole area was covered in seawater and a great layer of mud. In the next centuries, famous people like Posonius, Strabo, Ovid, Eratosthenes, I know I got all those wrong, I don't care, visited the sunken site where you could still see some of the monuments sticking out of the mud. Eventually, they were all covered by mud, and the city, along with its golden days and its tragic end, were lost to the sands of time. That is, until 1979, relatively new, when the Greek undersea explorer Alexis Papadopoulos discovered a sunken town and recorded his findings in a documentary film which shows walls, fallen roof, roof tiles, streets at a depth of between 25 and 45 meters. Well, is Helike or Helicule or whatever you pronounce it, is it Atlantis? Well, nothing has been proven yet, but... It matches way better than the Eye of Sahara, and it's up there with Spain having some kind of scientific backing. But there's another one. Could it be the Minoan settlement of Akrotiri, discovered on the Greek island of Santorini, known in ancient times as Thera? This is the next best site that some believers say, think, is, was, whatever you want to call it, Atlantis. Now, this island is formed by the remains of a volcano, so rings, bing, the site of an ancient but known settlement, ding, so ships, advanced for the time people, ding, hypothesized that massive Thera eruption, one of the largest in recorded history in the mid-2nd millennium B.C., 
destroyed it and caused a tsunami that in turn devastated Santorini. So wiped it out in one night. Ding. Yeah. Another good possible candidate. It really is. I mean, it, it really kind of matches. All righty. So that's a couple of really good candidates. I'm not going to go into too many more, but I do want to cruise through just a couple of really brief ones. The next one is a serious stretch. Doesn't match anything. It's America. Francisco Lopez de Gomara. Gomara, uh, He was first to come up with a theory that Plato was referring to America. Then Augustine de Zarate. Then Francis Bacon. Then Alexander von Humboldt. Then Johann Johannes Berchard. Also said it in 1663 in a book called The New World is Not New. They basically all thought that the sunken part was this little thing called the Atlantic Ocean. And that the, you know, when it sank, the part that sank was filled in with the entire Atlantic Ocean. It's ridiculous. Now, it first appeared as the Atlantic Island, Insula Atlantica. It was on a map of the New World by cartographer Sebastian Munster in 1540. And again, on the map titled Atlantis Insula, uh, it was done again by another on another map called Atlanta Insula by Nicholas Sanson and Son in 1669, which identified both North and South America as Atlantis Insula. So a lot of people were just like, oh, you know, Atlantis was so huge that it reads from the Straits of Gibraltar all the way to America. And then there was a massive flood, and that became the Atlantic Ocean. Nothing matched. It's done. It's 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 done. It's dumb and done. So moving on to Antarctica. That's right, Antarctica. The theory that it, oh, the theory that Antarctica was Atlantis was particularly fashionable during the 60s and 70s, spurred on partly by both the isolation of the continent and also the um the uh Pyrenees map. Uh, I've I've talked about this map before. It basically shows Antarctica as it would appear when it was like ice free, suggesting that human knowledge of that period, we knew what Antarctica looked like prior to all of the ice, except no. Um, nothing indicates it was Antarctica at all. And look, I'm not saying Antarctica has never had cities in it. It may have. I don't know. People have lived there before, it, before it froze over, that is. So we may find some funky stuff there now that it's thawing out, but I wouldn't put my money on it being Atlantis. So let's move on because we got lots to get to. Let's move on to a warmer spot that had some serious potential initially because of an underwater road. It's Bimini. And that's because September 2nd, 1968, all of these are relatively new dates. It's really kind of cool that Nothing, nothing, nothing. And then like 60s and 70s, we start finding some stuff. And then 90s and 2000s for a lot of this stuff. 2000s for the Spain one. On September 2nd, 1968, while diving in five and a half feet, 18, or I'm sorry, five and a half meters, 18 feet of water off the northwest coast of North Bimini Island, Joseph Manson Valentine, Jacques Mayall, and Robert Angove, Angove encountered an extensive pavement what was later found to be rounded stones of various sizes and thickness. This stone pavement was found to form a northeast-southeast lin- southeast, south, uh, northeast-southwest linear feature. Come on, Kurt, get through this. It's most commonly known as the Bimini Road or the Bimini Wall. Uh, a lot of people went, oh my God, it's proof. This is proof of Atlantis. But they didn't find anything else. No civilizations, no buildings, no nothing. 
Nothing else archaeologically happened. And there was a lot of people. It's been examined by geologists, archaeologists, anthropologists, marine engineers, tons of divers, tons of people. That's it. That's all they found. They didn't find the crystal pyramid that causes the Bermuda Triangle that was once part of Atlantis. Yeah, people think that. I watched videos on that. They didn't find an underwater dome city still so advanced that its people have kept it hidden from us and only converse with the shadow government. Yeah, people think that. And look, if that was true, if there really was some advanced dome underwater city that the only time they talk to people is with the shadow government, do you think some podcast like mine is going to be able to prove it? I would be wiped out by Atlanteans as I'm reading this. Oh, God. Okay, we're back. So, how about everything else is Atlantis? And I mean, everything else is Atlantis. Yep. That's a theory. It started in the 1882 publication of Atlantis, the Antediluvian World by Ignatius L. Donnelly, who attempted to establish that all known ancient civilizations, all of them, were descended from Atlantis. Let me read this little blurb to you that I did not write. Donnelly drew parallels between creation stories in the Old and New Worlds, attributing to the connection to Atlantis, where he believed the biblical Garden of Eden existed. That's right, the Garden of Eden was in Atlantis. He also believed that Atlantis was destroyed by the Great Flood mentioned in the Bible. Yeah, the Flood, the Noah's Ark Flood. And uh, eh, that's about it. It doesn't matter. He's credited as the father of the 19th century Atlantis revival and is the reason that the myth endures today. All right, I'll give him that. He unintentionally promoted an alternative method of inquiry into history and science and the idea that myths contain hidden information that opens them to ingenious interpretation by people who believe they have new or special insight. That's all from this guy. So if you're interested in Atlantis, it's probably because of this guy. All right, let's move on from him, though, because like anything mystical or magical, shit went bad in the 40s because someone else started looking for Atlantis. That's right, the dumb fucking Nazis. In the 1940s, a group started looking for the for all of Atlantis, basically, to, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to whittle it down to the very essential stuff. Heimlich Himmler, he tried to find the city through expeditions. He said, if they can find Atlantis, it was the key to the Aryan race. And some dumb Nazi book, not worth mentioning at all, the title of, that is, talked about the prophecy of the resurgence of a lost Aryan civilization, Aryan civilization by Nordic godmen. Boom. That's the connection to Atlantis. Now, it's said that Hitler actually read about this prophecy when he was a boy, possibly in a comic book, and he was fascinated by it. So Himmler spent a decade on a semi-mythical kind of quest he had an SS unit called the Ancestral Heritage, and this unit included archaeologists, scientists, and they basically went around the globe searching for Atlantis, or at least the lost Aryans of Atlantis. He went to the Himalayas. That was his big location because uh, the work of some guy named Herman Wirth, he conjectured there's a reason why Similar-looking symbols can be found in different parts of the world. That reason is the race of people who lived in Atlantis in the Atlantic Ocean, likely between Portugal and Britain, 
and that the survivors of sinking Atlantis head to the high places, hence the Himalayas, and that's how the descendants supposedly ended up in Tibet. So they go to Tibet, and Himmler and all his stupid idiot friends were convinced because of head size. That's right. He said the Tibetans were the direct descendants of Atlantis because of the size of their heads. Now, I don't know anybody from Tibet. I've seen videos and, you know, documentaries and things about Tibet. I've never gone like, wow, that is like the perfect head. I've never once thought that. But apparently he did. So um, it goes on to even more batshit craziness. There's a supposedly Bolivia's famous historical site called Tawanaku, which is actually Atlantis. He believed that uh, the world ice theory, which uh, Hitler also supported because he's an idiot, that um, the Earth at some point colluded, collided with the moon. So it slammed into the moon, and a cataclysm led to the destruction of Atlantis and an ice age on the planet. Trying to survive the ice age, ancient Atlanteans fled to the Himalayas. So that's dumb. Again, it's probably Spain. It's not that. Nazis are stupid. So let's move on to a person that believes Atlantis might be real. Actually, people, I should say, that believe that Atlantis might be real. Then the first guy, his name is Edgar Casey. He's from Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Now, that name should ring a bell. Not Edgar Casey necessary, but Hopkinsville. Because of the cryptid, the Hopkinsville Goblin. Find that episode. It's a great story. I like that one. But for this episode, Edgar... They said that he was a man from humble beginnings in Kentucky who he said possessed psychic abilities. He got into like a trance-like state and he performed psychic abilities. He could heal the sick from this trance-like state. He could speak of things he had no knowledge of, including Atlantis. And uh, his uh, life readings, as he called them, revealed that many of, this, of his subjects, of the people that followed him, were subjects, his subjects were reincarnations of people who lived in Atlantis. Now, he collect, he uh, tapped into their collective consciousness, a, uh, also known as, a.k.a. the Akashic Records, Akashic Records, doesn't matter. Uh, he said that he was able to give them detailed descriptions of Atlantis and their times there. And he said, Atlantis will rise again in the 1960s. He also said that there is a hall of records beneath the Sphinx, which is kind of odd because a lot of people think that there is actually a hall of records beneath the Sphinx. Maybe I'll do an episode about that someday. I'll look into that more. But a lot of people think that. Uh, he also began his career, uh, psychic career, when he began losing his voice at the age of 21, and doctors couldn't do anything about it. So he went into this kind of hypnotic trance. In this trance, something recommended a cure for him, so he tried it when he got out, and supposedly he got better. And he said, well, since it works for me, I'm going to start doing it for others. So he started describe, or diagnosing and prescribing cures while in this supposed sleep state. Um, he also did that for people who sent him letters, you know, because they couldn't be there. Uh, he loved to talk about past lives, the nature of the universe, what happened to Atlantis. He would say that when he woke up from this trance-like state, he didn't know anything that he had said. Uh, he decided, he also said that he could, uh, absorb information from a book placed under his head while, while asleep, but shocking, never tested. Um, they asked him to help find Lindbergh's baby. Couldn't do that. 
Uh, they tried to help him. Uh, they, they, you know, asked him, hey, can you help us find some buried treasure? Like, they kept trying to get him to give them proof, and he couldn't find that. He said that, uh, about the buried treasure, he said that there was ghosts of Native Americans and pirates playing tricks on him through the psychic energy. And he also claimed that the treasure had been there, but it was already dug up by somebody else, or maybe it would be buried there at some time in the future, but it wasn't there now. Tons of fun little excuses, basically. Um, but he also had a future prediction that the United States would discover an Atlantean death ray in 1958. Now, I know a lot of the believers, because I saw it and read it, say that they think that that actually happened. In 1958, the U.S. government found an Atlantean death ray or the Tesla ray. Okay. I can't prove it. I can't disprove it, so I'm going to move on. Uh, let's see. What's interesting, though, is that there was a lot of people, in the big people in the 50s that actually sought him out, either to try and disprove him, Harry Houdini, or tried to get information from him, like Marilyn Monroe and Irving Berlin and George Gershwin and Thomas Edison. So I can't verify, so take that with a grain of salt, but that's been written about time and time again about Edgar Cayce. Uh, let's see. Oh, this is an interesting one. Casey said that whenever there is severe or horrible calamities on Earth, like warfare, terrorism, that you would see a corresponding increase in the number of sunspots on the sun, and that somehow our thoughts, our deeds, our activities are also reflected in the universe. December 19th, I'm sorry, December of 2019, marks the beginning, marked the beginning of the solar cycle 25. So December 2019, Mark the beginning of solar cycle 25, and the sun's activity will once again ramp up until solar maximum in 2025. So there you go. According to Edgar Cayce, horrible calamities, warfare, terrorism, started ramping up in December 2019 and will go on until 2025. Let's hope he's not right about that one. All righty, let's move on. Then there's Rainer Kuhn who is a German physicist, and he says it's Spain. Satellite photos of southern Spain suggest that the island of Atlantis was, in fact, a region of southern Spain that was destroyed by a flood between 800 B.C. and 500 B.C. He said the satellite photos show rectangular structures and concentric circles that match very well. Boom, it's Spain. Then we've got Ulf Erlingsson, who is a Swedish geographer. He says, nope, it's Ireland, and he talks about it a lot. Said, just like Atlantis, Ireland is 300 miles long, 200 miles wide, features a, a central plain that is open to the sea. I've looked at the geographical data of the whole world of the largest 50 islands, 50 of the 50 largest islands. Ireland is the only one that matches. Ireland is the only one that matches the description. He said he calculated it with 99.98% probability that Atlantis was modeled on Ireland or that Ireland is Atlantis. So he goes on to say that um, all of the 99.98% is a probability that the island Atlantis was Ireland. But he says that the island that sank wasn't Ireland, but it was in fact nearby Dogger Bank, which was struck by a flood around 6100 BC. And he says that the um, there's Ireland's megalithic monuments that date back 3000 BC. They can be associated with the palace and temples described by Plato a lot of stuff that he's really reading into it, but he says the hill in which the Atlanteans' maternal ancestor Cleto was born resembles Terra, 
the legendary seat of the High King of Ireland. It's got a lot of stuff that really goes into it and says it's got to be Ireland. Uh, 100%, I think it's going to be Ireland. So, I don't know. I could keep going on with all those people, but I wanted to, uh, I wanted to move on, basically. I wanted to move on to the thing that I think is proof that I mentioned at the beginning. Yes, there may be some actual proof. And then there's something else that I mentioned, precious metals at the very beginning of this episode. Yeah, both of those things. It's called orichalcum, or a better name it is ancient Atlantis ingots. Now, it was once thought to be a mythical metal, but, as you're about to hear from me, isn't exactly mythical anymore. Now, Plato wrote that orichalcum covered the walls, columns, and floors of Poseidon's temple in Atlantis. He wrote that the only metal that surpassed in its value was gold. He said that the outermost wall was coated with brass, then the second with tin, and the third, which was the wall of the citadel, flashed with the red light of orichalcum. Red light. Very important. Now, um, Poseidon's laws were also inscribed into a pillar of orichalcum. So let me read you a few things about orichalcum. Found 47 lumps of orichalcum, an ancient alloy attributed to Atlantis. This is from 2017. Off the coast of Sicily, near the city of Gila, an expedition to a 2,600-year-old shipwreck has returned with 47 lumps of orichalcum, a rare alloy said to be smelted on the Fable Island of Atlantis. Now, the shipwreck dates back to 600 BC. It was previously explored in 2015 when underwater archaeologists found 39 ingots of the metal. This trip also yielded a jar and two Corinthian helmets. Now, orichalcum was supposed to be a shiny alloy, much like brass. It's known from ancient texts like Plato, which described it as rare metal mined at Atlantis. Plato described a temple of Poseidon. Oh, you already know all that. I'm going to skip ahead. In 2015, after the shipwreck was discovered, Sicilian officials started describing the metal found there by the name orichalcum. The ingots were made from zinc, charcoal, and copper. Uh, some have said that the tradition that orichalcum was made of copper, gold, and silver. Some have said it was other combinations of metals or precious metals. Uh, it's supposed to have a red tone to it, like this metal. Whether or not the metal found in this particular shipwreck is the orichalcum of old, it is strange, and it's a very rare discovery, possibly sent to the sea as an offering to the gods. One more. I got one more story to read you. Orichalcum, the lost metal of Atlantis, may have been found on a shipwreck off of Sicily. Mysterious red gold metal ingots linked to the mythical civilization of Atlantis have been recovered from an ancient shipwreck. The rest of this is basically the same, but this one has some photos of it. It's a very reddish gold looking colored ingot, very rough ingot. They said that they uncovered 47 ingots from the mud last month. And uh, they said there might be more. Very, very cool stuff. The helmets are also very cool. I just wanted to look at the photo real quick. Sorry. The red-hued orichalcum alloy was long regarded to be a myth mentioned only by Plato. Now, though, the metal is real. Studies have shown that the metal ingots to be made out of 75 to 80% copper, 14 to 20% zinc, and a scattering of nickel, lead, and iron. Eh, that's about it from that story. I, I wanted to just, I just wanted to go back to that in case there was something else that nothing really. But um, again, this mythical metal 
wasn't found until 2015 and then again even more recently in 2017. They said that orichalcum may have been a noble metal such as platinum. It was supposed to have been mined or one type of bronze or brass, possibly some other alloy. Uh, it's got a gold copper alloy color to it. Yep, it's got a reddish color to it. I mean, it really is a pretty looking metal. There's a guy named Joseph Needham who notes that the 18th century Bishop Richard Watson, a professor of chemistry, wrote of an ancient idea where there are two sorts of brass of orichalcum. He also suggests that the Greeks may not have known how orichalcum was made, and they might have just had an imitation of the original. They say that the orichalcum cargo likely originated on or near Cyprus, another island in the Mediterranean, and that every known alloy containing copper has been produced, including orichalcum, on Cyprus, possibly since the 4th millennium B.C. So they think they have a general area where this stuff was manufactured. So that, again, kind of points us to that same area of where Atlantis, if it's real, could be. And, uh, well, it all is pointing towards that area of Spain. Okay, so with orichalcum out of the way, and, I, well, actually, before I get past the orichalcum stuff, I don't understand why. I know there's only been, like, 49 bars of this stuff that's been found, but you would think that somebody would spend a crap ton of money to buy one of the bars and then... Make jewelry out of it. Because I would die for an auric, no, not die, but I would love to have an orichalcum ring, like a real one, not the one on Etsy that I, that I looked for it. I was like, I wonder if they haven't made jewelry out of it because that would be amazing. And they don't. There's some guy that, on, on Etsy that says, well, I was told that orichalcum is made by brass, gold, and copper. So here's my orichalcum. No, I want the real stuff. All right, now let's move past that. The, In my opinion, the best evidence yet of Atlantis. And let's go down a separate rabbit hole. A very kind of offshoot rabbit hole that I'm going to end this whole episode on. And it's about emerald tablets that were written by an Atlantean or about Atlantis or about aliens or about ancient Egypt aliens with information about Atlantis. And what a lot of Atlantis believers use as quote-unquote evidence of Atlantis. Well, it's debunk time of this episode. This is the big debunk part of the episode. Because what a wild ride it was trying to figure out what is real about these tablets. Are the tablets real? Is there an actual emerald tablet on display in a museum? Spoiler, nope. Where did they come from? Why are they so significant? Why do believers stick to these things like glue that this mythical emerald tablet is written about, written by Atlanteans or about Atlantis. Why are they, I don't, I don't, look, I don't get why they're significant to anyone, basically. I say that while also saying that, yes, this, these tablets, these emerald tablets, there's a lot of books that are written about them. And these books seem to help a lot of people with ethical dilemmas and religious dilemmas. And if you're reading them as part of like a self-help book or a spiritual book, I want you to know that that's fine. Don't let anyone take that away from you. But it's a very fine line between that and falling down like a cult-like Scientology slope of putting too much faith in a fictitious source. So just just keep keep your head above water with that is what I'm saying. I don't want to I don't want to knock these to the point where you you if you're getting something good out of them, great. Just know, though, 
that the emerald tablets aren't real. Just know that. Let me do the briefest of, of dives into this for you guys. First, is or are the emerald tablets or tablets of tote real? No. Quick answer, no. No emerald tablet has ever been found. Sure. Conspiracy theorists say that the Egyptian government did find them by the Pyramid of Giza, perhaps into that library room under the Sphinx, and they're keeping them from the public because of some information that the last two tablets say would just destroy society. Look, society's destroyed anyway. Just go ahead and tell us already. If that is the case, if that's real, just tell us already. But there is no, absolute no proof that any emerald tablet has ever been found. Now, if you look up emerald tablets or Atlantis emerald tablets or emerald tablet of Tote, T-H-O-T-H, just know that every photo of a shiny emerald tablet is a replica made of green tinted plastic that you can buy for $199 on some website. I found the website. I found the replicas. Every photo is of that. It's very pretty. Don't get me wrong. These these replica tablets, very pretty, but it's as real as a piece of kryptonite from a Superman movie. It's green plastic. There is no photograph of an emerald tablet ever. The photograph of the emerald tablet in a museum is of this fake green plastic one that you can buy for $199 on a website. The reason I'm getting so frustrated is because so many people use these photos saying, look, here's the actual emerald tablet. I don't know why people don't believe it. This emerald tablet talks about Atlantis, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's talk about what that emerald tablet talks about. The earliest source of the text from the tablet can be sourced back to an, uh, an Arabic text from the 6th century AD called the Book of Belenius the Wise. Belenius the Wise? I don't know. On the causes. But most books... Quoting Tote, the emerald tablet Tote, can be traced back to one guy. That guy is Dr., who is not a real doctor, Maurice Doriel and the Brotherhood of the White Temple. Maurice Doriel, or Doriel, remember, not a real doctor, and not even his real name, claimed that in 1925 he went to the Great Pyramids of Giza, <laughs> he never, ever went there. He didn't go at all. <sighs> and discovered the Emerald Tablet of Tote. Now, you could say, Kurt, how do you know he didn't go there? Well, they checked his passport. He's never left the continental United States. So, as soon as that was told, like, as soon as he, you know, was caught in that lie, he went, oh, no, I didn't, re I didn't physically go to the Great Pyramids of Giza. I psychically traveled to the pyramids of Giza. Fuck right off, man. But he says he went to the emerald tablet. Uh, he went to the, the pyramid of Giza and found the emerald tablet of Tote, a king of Atlantis. He then claimed that he had translated the text magically. Now, some sites who investigated him say he only had an elementary school level education, never traveled outside the United States, and records indicate employment as department store clerk, cab driver and a Kansas brokerage company salesman. Do with that information what you will. Then, in around 1930, 
Maurice formed the Brotherhood of the White Temple in Denver. He claimed that in 1931 in Los Angeles, he met two Atlanteans who took him to a cave underneath Mount Shasta. He quickly developed a cosmology focused on the inner earth, describing the underground races he claimed to have learned about from the Atlanteans. Now, he developed theories of an underground serpent race. During the 1950s, he incorporated aliens into his views because aliens became popular in, in pop culture. Now, he combined all of these into the theory that in the second half of the 20th century, the serpent race would ally with the Antichrist. He believed that there were three types of flying saucers, including one piloted by serpent people who were once icebound in Siberia, who became defrosted and then replaced and overthrew the communist regime in Russia. Sadly, all of this could easily be QAnon bullshit. I mean, it really could. This is the same kind of bullshit that comes out of QAnon daily. But this was in 1930. You'd think we would have learned about this, like moved past this kind of stupidity. Then in the 1940s and early 1950s, Maurice relocated the Brotherhood near Sedalia, Colorado, where he predicted that nuclear war would happen in 1953, but that him and his community would be protected by the mountains in the valleys they relocated to. Some of his other claims... He claimed he teleported inside Mount, inside Mount Shasta. He also contacted a pre-Adamite, non-human lost civilization. Uh, becoming appointed by a group of a mentally, physically, and spiritually evolved ascended masters as the supreme voice to guide humanity. Insisted that a Christ Kingdom avatar would appear May 2nd, 1956. So I had, to look, I had to look up, like, did anything ever happen May 2nd, 1956? Nah, not really. Was any celebrity born May 2nd, 1956? Nah, not really. But, fun fact, I found out that Emerald is the birthstone for May. May 2nd, 1956, Emerald birthstone, Emerald tablets. Conspiracy theorists go nuts with that connection. I don't care. Just don't quote, don't credit me with that discovery. Don't say, and then Paranormal Almanac's Kurt Sandig connected the dots between the emerald tablets and the emerald bursts. No, fuck all that noise. I did not. Uh, he also proclaimed the center of occult wisdom in the West was his Shambhala Ashrama in Colorado. He said that a Soviet nuclear uh, attack would strike in either May, August, or September of 1953. Uh, he'd offered you protection if you joined his cult for only $500 because of the lead in the canyon around his compound would stave off nuclear radiation. But even with that debunking, honestly, that wasn't hard to actually debunk about the actual tablet and about how Doriel's the one who wrote the tablet, the con the text from the tablet that everybody says is the text about the tote. It was all from Doriel. He said he got it when he went to, to Pyramids of Giza and found the Emerald Tablet of Tote, a king of Atlantis. It wasn't hard to debunk this stuff. It really, really wasn't. Some Atlantis believers still think that the Atlantean god Tote built the Pyramid of Giza's around 30,000 years ago after the city of Atlantis sunk, and that Atlantis sunk about 39,000 years ago they claim it matches up with Sumerian tablets like the Lost Memoirs of uh, Enki, E-N-K-I. No, no, none of this nonsense. Stop making me go down crappy rabbit holes, people. 
like I said, smarter people than me have investigated this and debunked all of it. I investigated all of this and debunked all of it. There is no emerald tablet. So unless you guys want to spend $199 and buy this plastic replica one that's very pretty, and I'll put it behind me when you guys, when I do live shows, you can look at it. There is no point to the emerald tablets. I, I went from there, I went to another group of people, and, and this is really quick. This is really quick. Uh, this other group of people said that this means that all traces of the city are long gone. There are rumors of a crystal pyramid in the Bermuda Triangle, which is still to be debunked, and which explains the missing ships and planes. Also, considering the Atlanteans are the ones who built the pyramids and other ancient megalithic structures across the globe. Giza, Bosnia, Chichen. These megalithic structures are all proof of Atlanteans. They're aligned on the Earth's natural electromagnetic grid lines. It's safe to say it could be in the Bermuda Triangle or the Dragon's Triangle in Asia, but Atlantis is throughout the world. Oof. So much to unpack. I mean, no. None of that. No. All right, sadly, I could keep going. I could keep giving voices to these to every like Atlantis whack job out there. And it would take me at least another four hours to put it into sort of legible or, or intelligible context like I've done with this whole episode. Because trust me, piecing this shit together is like, is like someone giving you 50 puzzles all in one box and keeping 30 pieces from each of the puzzles to themselves and be like, make a puzzle out of all of it. Nope, it's got to be complete. It's not. It is the most garbled pile of crap in the world. But I did it. This episode is out. Well, not out, but by the time you hear it, this episode is out. It is done. It is out there for you guys to sit through, and then I'll apologize later that I made you sit through all of it. But hopefully you got some information out of it. Look, there's a lot of factual information on here. There's a lot of debunking stuff, but there's a lot of factual information on here. Prior to going down and, and learning about Atlantis, I didn't know about Orichalcum. And, and you were going to say, that's not how it's pronounced. Bullshit. I looked it up like 50 times. It's Orichalcum. Uh, I didn't know about the Straits of Gibraltar. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I learned. So, that, I mean, that, you know, like, hey, knowledge is power. G.I. Joe told me that. But um, I hope you guys got something out of this. I hope that um, you guys enjoyed it. And I'm going on record that Spain is the best site discovered yet and that Orichalcum is the breast, the breast, oof, is the best proof yet. And as far as I'm concerned, right now, today's date, 2-24-2022, 2.39 p.m. As far as I'm concerned, right now, 2-24-2022, 4.39 p.m. As far as I'm concerned right now, Atlantis probably was real, but nothing magical. If you want magical Atlantis, go to Bermuda and stay at their cool hotel. Um, but I also want to say that I do have a right to change my mind another 50 times about Atlantis. This is not like, you know, permanent record. Atlantis is real. As of right now, as of today, as of the date I gave you just now. Yeah, I want to say, yeah, Atlantis was probably real. So what do you guys think? 
You guys think Atlantis was real? Is there any chance that Atlantis could have been real in your mind? Did anything that I told you about today make Atlantis more real or less real in your mind? Did I change your mind and maybe the other way that I wasn't planning on doing? I wasn't planning on doing it either way, but still. What do you guys think? Atlantis real? You want an orichalcum ring like I do? Sounds pretty cool. Do you think we'll ever find definitive proof that Atlantis was real in our lifetimes? I hope so. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Samgen. This has been another Atlantis crazy rabbit hole filled whack job edition of Paranormal Almanac. Sit now, there we nimble like your lot.